The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. And by Black and Veatch, building a world of difference. This is session 197. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have the wonderful Tom Ferguson of Burnt Island Ventures as our guest today. Tom's insights into early stage water investing and the broader water sector in general. And these he does a great job on this part in particular. He does a fa- fantastic job on the whole interview, but I, I really uh, love his insights into the broader water sector. Uh, they're just top-shelf insights, and you're, you're going to learn a great deal, and I'm sure it's going to spawn some new ideas in your corner of the water sector. So the interview is a true value add. And I know we normally do a Bluefield on tap segment for the first podcast of the month, but Reese's schedule and my schedule just did not line up last week, so we're going to have to take a rain check on Bluefield on tap for this episode. But before we get to the interview, we always give a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for 2021 include the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, and Black and Veatch. And I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You would be very surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how much you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, will help others find out about the podcast. Now it's on to our feature guest, Tom Ferguson of Burnt Island Ventures. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Tom, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? Yeah, not bad at all, Dave. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is a um, this is really exceptional. I've listened to so many of your episodes. As I said, when I when I logged on, it's an awfully familiar voice, and it's great to be a part of it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so let's let's get this rolling. Um, you know, for those who don't know you or are unfamiliar with it, can you pr- please provide a little uh, background on yourself and how you got interested in water? For sure. Um, so I've been in and around the water sector since 2010. I was the uh, I was the cheapest built person in the building uh, at ERM London. ERM is the, the pure sustainability consultancy that just got uh, bought by KKR. Um, but at that time, I was um, 
I was sort of, you know, totally clueless, typical sort of straight out of university um, uh, kind of person. And the, the opportunity came along. ERM had agreed to do a pro bono piece of work for the Carbon Disclosure Project, which was writing the first water disclosure report, which is now many, many thousands of companies and does an extraordinary job um, sort of illuminating the, the, the data and strategies from many thousands of companies across the world. But then it was kind of 150 of the global 300 had responded to the first one. Um, and so it was my job to to cut the data, produce the report. We launched it at Bloomberg, and it was it was a whole load of fun. And suddenly that was the the first illumination of the water sector to me. And then I sort of ended up as a bit of a de facto water sustainability guy, working with you know multiple clients, kind of mining super majors, oil and gas super majors, that kind of crew. Um, but then I kind of wandered off into the undergrowth. I went to went to uh, business school for two years, two early stage roles, which taught me a huge amount about how. Um, really very experienced people uh, and very, very smart people can really effectively set fire to large quantities of investor capital uh, with, with alarming <laughs> speed. Um, uh, and, and then in 2015, the opportunity came up to uh, join Scott Bryan um, at Imagine H2O to really build out their programming efforts. And so uh, I spent six years, um, uh, you know, helping Scott build a, a programming programs out from one to three, from two people on the team to uh, nine, I think, at last count. Um, and so, yeah, that's that was the, the sort of the path into the real hardcore water sustainability. I was I was um, <laughs> I was the random British guy that joined Imagine H2O and sort of with degree of regularity made a fool of himself on stage. So people <laughs> sort of got to know me relatively quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you get to the, to the, the across the pond? Um, what, what, what level was that after business school? Was it before business school? When did it, when did you make the job? That was for business school. It was for business school. I, I, I kind of, um, I kind of launched a, uh, an application in only one uh, to one business school uh, in 20. Uh, well, it would have been early 2012. Um, and mercifully they let me in. Um, I, I think the the ex actor sustainability guy British person. Um, I made I made a reasonably strong case that I thought that I would be additive uh, to the kind of perspective of the people within the classroom uh, at HBS, and so they they mercifully left me, left me in. Um, it was a absolutely superb experience, um, a wonderful kind of just less than two years in Boston. I met my now wife, which is um, obviously amazing. Um, uh, but we we shipped over to San Francisco in, in 2014, and as I as yet i have not yet left much to the chagrin of my poor mum but we'll um we'll figure that out at some stage yeah yeah so uh i'm curious about how your experience in those kind of startup uh uh scenarios how that shaped kind of what you're doing today uh because what we're going to get into today i think has a lot to do with what you just described and it, it just kind of picks my interest there yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, totally inextricable, um, right? I mean, I had the absolute like honor and privilege to work with kind of 170 of the best founders that were building uh, companies in water worldwide. Um, you know, under kind of my auspices post post 2015 in the accelerator. Uh, directly, that was kind of 82. Um, but overall, through the um, uh, the Urban Water Challenge, Imagine H2O Asia, and the previous cohorts of uh, of Imagine H2O, you know, there's really just um, just a phenomenal group of, of founders. And I think, I mean, I really started off as a traffic cop, right? Um, in that it was really important to me um, that people who don't know what they're talking about in startups really shouldn't 
sort of start talking really. And I turned up and I knew a bit about startups, but not much. And so it was really, really important that I kept my mouth shut and really dug super hard. And Scott obviously already had a, 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 you know, a huge network kind of in place, but familiarizing myself with that network, expanding it to make sure that I was going to be able to make a link between the problem that the founders had and the people that knew stuff about that problem, because that wasn't me for at least three years. But my job was to listen and observe and to see like where there were commonalities, where there were uh, areas that, you know, where I, I thought that we could kind of come up the uh, come up the, the usefulness, um, uh, uh, the usefulness curve pretty quickly. But after a certain amount of time, you kind of see diminishing marginal surprises. Um, but over kind of five and a half, six years, I think what you get to is a high enough N, right? We sort of, we vetted about two and a half thousand companies over the time that I was there and that you start to become familiar with, with the brilliance, but much more importantly, the common mistakes, the landmines that are lying around in, 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 in startup creation in water. And and I'm a big believer that, that, um, that startups in water are much more to do with Berkshire Hathaway than they are to do with Andreessen Horowitz. Um, now, I, I say that because, you know, the Andreessen Horowitz Sand Hill Road side of things is really predicated on companies being as big as possible, as fast as possible. And that's great. That has driven a, a huge amount of, of consumer surplus for, for the citizens of, of the US and the world. Uh, but I think it's a far more effective way of thinking about company building in water is to avoid the things that will kill you, is that if you stay out of trouble and you trust in compounding, then good things can happen as long as you have a set of fundamental predicates that are in place as you set off on your journey. And, and that's why it's such a privilege to be working with such early stage founders where we can bring that kind of perspective to bear at the earliest stages of fund of company formation, because it really does help them stay out of the woods in terms of stuff that can become extremely expensive uh, in their future later. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about what I think it'll help to frame all this by telling us what kind of what space you're filling right now. Uh, you know, with, with your, with your company, Burn Island Ventures. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've always been so grateful to anybody who cuts checks in, in water. Um, <laughs> uh, there are always been some, some um, fantastic kind of, um, you know, purveyors of that uh, art from the, you know, the, the, the teams that, you know, Mazarin and Emerald and Trinal Venture Partners and, and the people that you are, are overall, overall really familiar with. Um Sky on Silmar Group, the, they were just really, really fantastic groups. Um, but I think that there was a a little bit of, I mean, I wouldn't say frustration, but I think it was, it, it struck me as unnecessarily and slightly dangerous. The one thing that you could say about the group of investors that backed any given startup was that that group of investors was going to be unpredictable. Um, everywhere from Sand Hill Road VC firms to individual angel groups to individuals to corporates, like the best companies always got there in the end, right? I've never seen a company in water that deserved to raise money, not be able to raise money just because it's in water, right? That's a fundamental observation. They get there, but it takes ages, um, and the more ages it takes, the more distracted these fantastically talented CEOs are from actually building the business. And so being able to short circuit that timeline was something that I thought I was going to be able to um, contribute to. But also, I think that um, I think that I felt that, you know, I and slash we, the team that we kind of built around um, Burnt Island Ventures, had the potential to be kind of really well placed to 
go broad at seed. So at the earliest stages of company formation, we're in terms of the investments we've already made, we're a little bit later than I think we're going to end up. Um, that's for a bunch of reasons we can go into. But I really thought that there was space for a for a venture fund that was operating in a thoughtful, fast, value additive beyond the check manner that would help um, companies really build the sustainable basis for for the solution to whatever chosen water problem they had uh, going forward. Um, And you might want to get onto this later, but I think this was also a function of, I mean, frustration and fear, right? So frustration in the, in the, in the context that I thought that the, the overall commercial argument for a seed fund was just getting better and better. I mean, nothing is unidirectional. God knows what the future will hold. But I think when you look out, you know, certainly within our kind of liquidity timeframe, and by liquidity timeframe, I mean the, the, the time where we need to kind of harvest our investments, basically get our money back with, with hopefully a considerable return. When you look seven to 10 years out, I think there's a really, really strong argument that there's actually going to be a, 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 a fundamentally different liquidity environment than there is now. And we're already starting to see the, the green shoots of that. But the, but the fear comes from the fact that we don't have really a, a kind of a functioning funding environment in water in the same way that we sort of now do in, in carbon and, and in various areas of climate more, more generally, and certainly in the broader startup universe. It's really dangerous. Like climate change is water change. Like the way in which we respond to inevitable climate change that we have baked into our future. I mean, it sucks, but it's true. Um, our ability to respond to it is fundamentally predicated on our ability to, to steward and, and harness the water molecule um, and control it, as we've seen with all of the floods in the last couple of weeks. Um, and the fact that we are not yet building in a concerted manner the 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 companies of the the future that are going to be able to help us deal with that in seven to ten to fifteen to twenty years years time at least from the capital side of things because certainly the talent is there i just thought that was phenomenally dangerous and i wanted to go and put my shoulder to the wheel to 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 you know be hopefully a really important part of that capital stack that the best funders sorry the best founders have access to kind of a funding product and, a, and support behind that check that can make a meaningful difference to the amazing work that they're doing. I don't want to over it because investors are, are, all the time give themselves way too much credit. This is a founder story. This is not a burnt island venture story. Um, but hopefully we can be, we can be additive in, in our way. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're out there looking for these, these, the, the cream of the crop and the founders and the ideas and things like that, what do you, what are kind of you looking for? What's, what's kind of the thumbnail of that? Sure. Um, well, I won't go into all of it because our checklist for our preliminary due diligence is 23 items. <laughs> long. Um, but we're really trying, try, uh, trying to kind of triangulate, um, uh, around a few things. So one of the, I think the the misconceptions around venture, especially early is that this is kind of a spreadsheet game um, that really what you're doing is doing kind of hardcore investment banking finance to make sure that things work on a spreadsheet and you've got all sorts of numbers to play with. When we're investing, we really don't have a lot to go on. What we have is a problem, a founder, 
I mean, hopefully a product, but sometimes an idea of a product to be able to be produced by that founder to solve that problem. We've got the dynamics in the market that they are working in. Um, we've obviously got a, a bit of an idea about what we think that they can price at, what their cost structure is that they can um, uh, that they can bring to bear to make money for themselves, but crucially actually uh, deliver a fantastic ROI for clients. So there's a lot to go on. But if you had to get me to choose the most important things, the first thing is the problem. Um, we have a couple of value-add businesses in the 12 investments that we've made so far, uh, N9 Energy being a, a big one. Um, but in general, the companies that we have backed and anticipate backing are responses to pain. Um, pain is really important in that pain begets pace. And one of the problems historically in, in, in water um, investing is that people don't tend to do it a lot because they get scared that it's slow. Um, and a lot of the time it is slow. Um, but we've seen with a whole bunch of our companies that actually water companies can, and water clients, not just utilities and municipalities, can act awfully fast if you're acting on the same, on the right pain point. So we're looking for the founders that have identified a reason why someone's life sucks <laughs> and they need an imperfect solution now to solve at least some of that pain. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is obviously the team. Um, we, we have a kind of a split between two types of founders. So eight of the companies that we've invested in have excruciating founder market fit. Um, basically people who have lived the pain point that they are solving through their company for kind of at least 10 years. Um, it just means that they're very, very unlikely to build something that people don't want, which sounds obvious, but is a weirdly big problem um, in the, its biggest manifestation actually is usually PhD itis. Now, no shade on PhDs. We've invested in a bunch of them. I know a bunch of them, super awesome. But one of the questions you are usually not asked during your PhD is what is the unit economics that you need to achieve with this product in order to be able to have a fighting chance of being able to sell this into uh, the market that you are going after. Um, that's not important during the PhD process. They only focus on the, on the technical side of things. And sometimes technology is enough, but more often than not, um, more often than not, uh, when people have fallen in love with their, their technology, it's, um, it, can, it can actually kind of get in the way uh, rather than really focusing on the pain and fitting the product to that pain rather than, hey, I've built a significantly larger mousetrap or whatever it might be. Um, and then the, the, the last thing uh, that we're really looking for um, is, and I, to, I hesitate to say the, the product, but the product does, I mean, it obviously matters but we're looking for people with an understanding of the whole solution. And by that, I mean, like a product is not a product in itself. A product is a means of delivering a value proposition. It's a means of solving a problem. And the way in which you do that is not just by giving someone a box that does something and then marching off onto the next client. It's people who understand what the early stages of selling and making sure that their clients are realizing the value proposition that you've promised them in the sales process and making sure that they, they absolutely understand that they are getting an, an extraordinary customer uh, experience. So that hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of what we're, we're looking after, but it's a very, very interesting overlap between art and science 
Oh, and then the last thing I would say is obviously credible pace. It comes from it comes from the the pain point, um, but we do need to be able to underline uh, to to underwrite, and by underwrite I mean um, uh, build a uh, build a credible story around how fast this thing can be sold into the market. And that's usually a function of ROI, obviously the degree of pain, the initial entry price, um, the ease of deployment, all of these things that go into us being able to say, yeah, we can we can see you growing as fast as any company that we've seen hitherto growing in in water. Yeah, great, great points. Now, um, you mentioned that you're, you want to go even earlier so when we kind of stack up the different kinds of capital, yes. when we kind of stack up the different kinds of capital, right, you kind of got, what's the progression? It goes, it goes VC, then private equity, and then you're going public or something like that. So, so, um, you know, I well, hopefully going public. Yeah. I mean, we had three <laughs> IPOs in June. We had three IPOs in June. We actually don't, we actually don't predicate any of our decisions on any of our companies going public. Um, we think all of these, all of the kind of the exits that we're going to have are from private sales, but between NX Filtration, Aquaporin and Energia, you know, why the hell not? Um, yeah. Certainly the team at Zwitico looked over at the first two and thought, wow, okay, well, maybe we've got a, an interesting trajectory here. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of the stack, really what you, what uh, the, the nomenclature is basically meaningless now. I saw an, an I saw a series A for something, I won't name it, um, but it's basically kind of an online kind of knowledge community. And they had a 247 million pre-money valuation. That's the amount of money that they think the company is worth before they've taken on an additional investment at the series A. Like, that's crazy, obviously. Um, but this is just the venture market overall. But as you can't venture, the way in which you should think about it is pre-seed, which is usually people with an idea and a dream and hopefully a great fit between the founder and the market and all the rest of it. Um, then there's the seed, which is after you've done a reasonable amount of work and you usually have some kind of revenue coming into it. Um, that didn't used to be the case. It kind of is now. And then you have series A and series B and series C and series D and series E. And by the time you get down the bottom, it sort of starts to, and oftentimes it starts to look like a bit of a grade unless you are kind of Airbnb or whatever. Um, and then, and then in terms of the way in which um, companies get out of the, the venture, because um, during that time, all the way from pre-seed to series E, people are putting in more money. No one's taking any money out. I mean, apart from with secondary sales, but we don't really need to get into that. No one's taking any money out. Um, this is all investment building up the valuation of the company. And then when then you transfer to to um, kind of har- what's called harvesting, right, is it, that can be through um, two principal avenues. Um, it will be a private sale that could be to an incumbent like Xylem or Suez or Veolia or Evoqua or Harkpal, whoever. Or it's likely to be to uh, private equity. Um, I think there's going to be more and more activity around private equity. Um, the private equity industry raised an absolute boatload of, um, of, uh, infrastructure capital. And then they realized that, um, <laughs> that like the owning dams is <laughs> only a good idea up until you kind of reach the end of the amount of dams that you want to actually own. Uh, and then you kind of want to throw off the shackles of what infrastructure private equity actually means. 
Um, and I think they're going to be spreading their wings a little bit. Um, and I think you've already seen a bit of that with, um, uh, you know, things like Aegeon getting taken private by Mountain Capital for 964 million. That's a bit more regulation. Um, but, the, but that's usually how the, the, the overall transaction stack uh, works. And then, oh, sorry, then there's also obviously the IPO, which is the initial public offering, which is basically listing the shares of the, of the company on the public markets, being able to be freely, freely traded, uh, freely traded by anybody who wishes to, to buy a piece. And I hope that becomes more of Water's future because frankly, we need, need more public traded entities all of the all of the um the indices um as as is often pointed out by chris gasson in, in gwi is it's all inherently very predictable because there just aren't that many traded traded uh, entities um in water well in purely exposed to water uh, out there and hopefully we'll have a lot more in the coming kind of seven to ten years yeah it's it's interesting you you kind of uh we, we started off when you were talking about your background and how one of the companies you work for got uh, the EMC got traded off to or got bought up by KKR, another private equity firm. So that's, that's fairly well diversified. So interesting, um, interesting life cycle there. Uh, well, can you talk a little about kind of the investments you have made? I mean, you, you kind of re- referenced Enline Energy earlier. Uh, what, what other investments sure. have you guys looked at? Well, I mean, we've looked at we've looked at a reasonable amount. I'd done I'd done a little bit of personal stuff uh, earlier that we've rolled into the um, the fund. Um, we've got twelve positions now, uh, which is pretty quick. We signed our our LPA. Uh, that's the limited partner agreement. That's the kind of the the legal uh, document that puts you illegally in business as a fund on February the 9th and then, and then shipped out our first check to um, uh, to Zwitico actually on February the sixteenth. Alex, if you ever catch up with him, um, he will tell you that that almost killed me that process, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, it was great in the end. It was great in the end. Um, so yeah, I suppose Whitaker is a good place to start. Um, we knew that we wanted to be diversified across all sort of verticals of the water sector, because one of the, the privileges that the water sector affords you is that you can have relatively uncorrelated um, uh, relatively uncorrelated kind of verticals of the market, which allows you to have the the diversification, which anybody that does kind of portfolio theory tells you is the is the kind of the only free lunch. Um, yeah, we're sure all of ours are correlated, correlated because it's water, but it was important not to us to be able to look as much at all of the all of the subsectors of digital. But like we are, we're dealing with a physical molecule, so it didn't make any sense to us to like just deal with digital, even even though it's been making kind of a lot of noise. We knew that we wanted to be dealing with with the hardware side of things uh, first. I did not expect to be jumping into a membrane company off the bat, but Alex and and the team, Alex and Chris and the team, um, we'd known them for a couple of years. Um, the most important thing with them is that they dealt with a pretty major setback um, about two years ago when they had to basically revise all of their expectations around their market um, and really go and do a very serious process to understand the fit between the the properties of the membrane coating um, that they created, their Zwitter ionic membrane coating, and the properties of the wastewater that were possibly out there in the wastewater industry. And they were just so methodical about it. And they ended up with kind of eight to 10 initial target markets, which they then focused down into about two or three, which they are currently addressing kind of at the moment. But they really embodied what we kind of refer to as, as entrepreneurial process. Like what happens when you get hit in the head? Because a lot of people would have grasped for the nearest life belt. 
right? It would have been, okay, who is showing even a shred of interest? And let's just sort of build the next stage of our company around that, even though in the final analysis, that's either not a big enough market or it's not a suitable market, or it doesn't have the unit economic for us for the medium term. Like it's just minimizing the possibility that you're going to spin your wheels. Now you may still spin your wheels, but you've just got to think in bets, right? You've got to be making sure that you're constantly thinking about like just minimizing the likelihood at any given juncture of just doing something dumb, right? And by, and by doing something dumb, I mean just not doing the work to be able to give yourself the best possible chance of success, even if that roll of the dice doesn't roll out. Because sometimes like the, 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 um, the possibilities will be in your favor, but it just won't swing your way, your way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like the art of entrepreneurship is really about like thinking through that lens. Um, and they just really embodied it. Um, and it was at a really interesting stage of the company. They hadn't yet put it in the wild, but they were 10 days away from putting it into the wild. Um, and we thought from everything that we saw and the, and the work that, um, you know, that we did as a, as a kind of an investment committee around that, we thought that there was a reasonable chance that this was going to go some when it got out into the, um, when it got out into the wild, as it happens, it, um, it, it really did go, uh, go some and, um, and they're in a really interesting position. We're about to do a follow on check, uh, into them, uh, 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 alongside the, the other investors in the, in the previous round. Um, but it's just got really, really interesting, uh, non-fouling properties. Um, I, I don't know how Alex is, uh, how much Alex is going to, um, uh, uh, would want me to um, say, I'll let him <laughs> talk about it, but it, you should check out the work of, of Zwitico. Yeah. Um, and then just to give you an idea of the range, I mean, our, our largest check today has been into Doppler, um, which I believe fundamentally needs to be part of the tech stack of every utility, uh, if not in the US, the world. And I mean, beyond um, water and, and wastewater as well. Um, uh, telecoms power, uh, the whole nine yards. Um, what they do is is automate, um, automate the automate incoming information to be able to uh, prioritize, and this is through the language processing algorithm, to prioritize what the information is telling them is happening, whether that's uh, an excess of chlorine or a discoloration event or a burst pipe or like whatever it is, to automatically put that into the um, into the workflow of the field teams um, to be able to uh, geolocate the issue um, to recognize when teams have gone on site the work that they do. Um, this is obviously, this is um, really importantly, there is now a mobile uh, app for the teams to be able to record the work that they have done. It also records when the teams leave the site, which is really important for legals. But it means that the people who are currently, you know, usually massively overqualified and they're sitting there looking at all of the data coming in from the website or text messages or 311 or Nextdoor or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is, can now go and do something much more productive with their time. And the field crews actually get to get a workflow that makes sense. Cause at the moment things are done by, you know, something comes in, they identify it and then someone's on the phone. And then actually it turns out that Larry's not in the field at the moment. He's in Tampa playing golf. And so they've got to phone up, you know, Cheryl who is in the field, but she's got four other things that are on her plate at the moment. But like, it's a disaster of a process at the moment. And John and Ryan have done an, an exceptional job. They're doing, they just crossed the, the one point, uh, they're now 1.1 million in, in annual recurring revenue with, I think, 68 clients, um, 25 states, just doing amazing, amazing stuff. Um, M-Line Energy was a really, really big one. Again, we really interest, uh, were interested in the water energy nexus. We don't think we'll make another play within this just because N-Line are so compelling. Um, uh, basically using the, the 
the um, I mean, the core of their business has historically been kind of small hydro, um, basically excess uh, excess pressure valves within within pipeline systems, being able to run a motor backwards at those junctures to generate power. It's the same logic, just with the the, the pressure step down from industrial boilers, um, which is all over basically anywhere with the campus, whether it's a hospital or a university or a lumber mill or whatever it is. Um, but they are just an exceptional group of professionals um, selling a really quite we're selling a really good priced product supported by a huge amount of grants um ecstatic customers like all of this all of this stuff i mean it's tremendously exciting the teams that we get to work with but i think if you were to cover it we are we are four hardware two combination hardware software and six pure software plays um if I don't really like that word plays, but six software companies. And so we're, we're kind of covering the gamut. Um, and they're just a really, really interesting, really interesting group of companies solving what we perceive to be pretty systemic issues. Um, one of the things I'm slightly disappointed in, but it's early days, right? We've only been investing for five months is that we haven't quite been able to find um, things that have compelling enough economics that are really going at the heart of both the sanitation and access uh, issues um, uh, kind of worldwide. We think we've identified uh, at least a couple on the access things, uh, access side of things that we are looking at um, specifically in atmospheric water generation, um, which is is pretty interesting. But I was just on the phone this morning with a French company that I think has got a, a really interesting approach to um, to uh, massively increasing the efficiency of kind of run of the mill membrane processes. Um, and so there's tons of really, really interesting stuff going on there. Massively talented um, founders, and we're we're very proud of of. I mean, I don't like the word portfolio. Um, I think, and I've already said this, I think everywhere investors take way too much credit. Um, and I think portfolio suggests that you've created something. You haven't. Um, we've been very lucky that these founders have um, have uh, been generous enough to let them kind of jump on this train with them and try and put our shoulder to their wheel. Um, we're very, very grateful to to all of the founders that have um, uh, that have been lucky enough to 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 um, let us be a part of their story. We like to refer to it as the island um, rather than the portfolio. I'm not sure anyone else understands that, so we might have to stick with portfolio. But anyway, it's a <laughs> it's a it's a really good group of it's a really good group of companies. Yeah, yeah, and what you've described, I think, is it's very valuable because most folks in the water sector don't typically deal with that kind of stuff, and for, the, for I think it's very helpful for for them to understand kind of the the number one the, the the timeline you've laid out or the the stages you've laid out and kind of a lot of the different technologies and things like that so I think it's really valuable information that you've provided when you when you step back and just look at the water sector in general what are some of the things that you don't like about it and what are some of the things that you like about it Oh, wow. Okay. This is the, this is the, <laughs> how's that for you know, a broad question? This is the, this is the don't, this is the don't annoy people question. I think it's going to be slightly inevitable that I will annoy a couple of people with my um, answer. Um, I think one of the things that has like people who go into water tend to stay. And I think there are specific reasons for that. Um, like firstly, like once you understand what it's like to work at the bottom of the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, and you understand how like basic 
water is to the ability of people to really accomplish anything in their lives, including staying alive. You know, as as I shamelessly stole from George Hawkins, right? The water is the fundamental molecule that allows society to exist. Once you start working in it, um, you realize how fragile that situation is. Um, and so that's one of the things I obviously I, I like the most. I also really like the people. One of the things that's great um, about the water sector is that it really doesn't attract too many egos. Um, you don't have very many people that I would classify as kind of in the bin. Um, in general, this hugely humble, massively capable, very smart, enormously dedicated, fun, funny, like really great, uh, great crew. Um, so beyond that, I think that, so taking off my kind of personal hat for a second, um, cause I really have worked with some phenomenal professionals from, um, uh, imagination and, and beyond, but taking off the personal hat to the commercial hat, I really do think this is unidirectional. I think, um, I think the water sector is in a really, really great position for someone like me, because I think people are just starting to get it. Um, Gretzky had this great quote about, um, you know, his secret being, um, that you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck is going to be. And I think that that was a big part of why I, I joined Imagine H2O in 2015, because I couldn't see any future where water was going to get less important. And I think what we're seeing at the moment, you know, three IPOs in June, increased activity in the uh, in the private equity uh, side of things, but also just the ramifications of water from the mega drought in the southwest to plumes of water shooting up next to Hammersmith Bridge in London to, you know, really epochal floods in Zhenzhong to Turkey to Belgium to Germany, obviously. People are just starting to get it. Um, and I think what we're going to see over the next six to nine months is a increase in the salience of water in the, the kind of the, the national and international commercial conversation. And I think it's telling that two of the biggest communities in around kind of climate tech, um, the MCJ community, my climate journey community, um, led by a guy called Jason Jacobs, and then the climate tech VC newsletter, um, Kim over there is doing uh, fantastic work. Um, both of them put out pieces on water, uh, this week, we were lucky enough to be featured in the, the, the clean tech, um, VC one, um, just a couple of our, our thoughts. But I think water is going to become front and centre. Well, not necessarily front and centre because carbon is so important. But when people talk about resilience, they're going to realise that what they're actually talking about is water very quickly. And I think it's going to be mainstream. Now, that poses a problem for me, right? Because, you know, most of what we're doing is basic supply and demand. If there's more demand for water companies, our entry prices, so the prices at which we make our investments, um, may go up. I hope not. And any uh, founders who are listening to this, who uh, plan on um, getting in touch with Burnt Island Ventures, uh, we know what fair is. So, <laughs> so don't, so, so, so don't get any ideas. Um, well, yeah, in fact, you probably will, and you, you're quite right too. Um, but the, uh, I think that's that's you've got a a long term idea here that I think everybody who works in water should be very reassured by because we're working in in the right place. More directly, I think 
you've, we've only seen from Europe what is coming out in terms of carbon at the moment, in terms of whatever the EU Green Deal is going to look like. But the water side of it, I mean, obviously the water sector consumes a reasonable amount of energy within Europe. And I think there are going to be really interesting tailwinds from that. Um, so Europe is just going to get an even, become an even more productive place to be. But it's been heartening to see. I wrote, I wrote a, a piece the other day um, about maybe slightly um, cynical where I was sort of saying, yeah, this isn't enough and there isn't enough federal support. And there isn't because federal support for water fell out of bed in 1979 and never recovered. And it's a kind of slightly grotesque situation. And we'll get onto something around that in just a second. Um, But it does seem like water is part of the federal infrastructure bill and knock on wood, hopefully within three weeks, we'll understand a lot of what the funding future of water in the US looks like. Um, but it does seem to have been resilient. Um, so I don't know whether anyone clocked this, but when the the infrastructure, uh, the the sort of additional water bill, and I forget its name, sorry, um, when it passed in, I think it was in March, it was 84 to 6, I think, in the Senate. Um, and then there was a vote on the China competitiveness uh, bill about a week later, and it was only kind of 71 to 16. Now, you know you're in a good place where water is more resilient in the in the Senate than, than, you know, China competitive issues. I mean, I just, you know, it was, um, it, it's, it's great. I mean, it could be a part of a larger story that I don't understand, but it does seem like this is something that we can all agree on. Um, but on the other side of that coin, in terms of things that I don't like, there are two things that I would say. Firstly, in terms of lobbying, and my apologies to all the people that do work in the lobbying side of things, it drives me absolutely bananas the degree to which that we do not punch our weight in the federal arena. Um, So water employs 1.4 million people. At last count, I think the oil and gas sector employed on the region of about 200,000. The oil and gas sector has been dining out of hundreds of millions of subsidies that basically underpin their entire business model for decades. Like why the hell can't that be a part of water's operating reality? And the reason is, is that we do not speak as one voice. I mean, this is partly an accusation leveled at the corporates, but also as the, also at the, at the organizations that think that it's good enough to kind of do a fly-in and have a conversation with a congressperson that she, that congressperson has forgotten about about 10 minutes before they've left. Like, we have the weight, we have the importance, we have the position in the economy that if we chose to act in concert not as wastewater and waste not as wastewater and water and not as kind of you know you know they're one of the largest ones but i think they only spent seventy five thousand dollars in uh on capitol hill but like you know not as suez acting individually and xylem acting as individually and violi is acting as individually and evoke was acting as individually what happens if we pull that like you only need to be spending about 750 grand a year to actually turn people's heads. And that's what that's what Vastas does. And look at the support they're getting for wind energy. I mean, it's just, it drives me nuts. And, and people always say like, oh, but this is like federal stuff. It should be done at the state level. And I just, I do cuts absolutely no truck with me. Maybe because I'm European and I'm used to kind of statist, like whatever. But like, let's be very clear. When you've got 150,000 water and wastewater systems, and I know a lot of those systems are just sort of six houses around a, a well. But when you've got like the kind of operational headwinds that you have in water, like not 
bringing the federal stuff to bear in the way that you can. And I get that there are a lot of people who are doing really, really good work out there, but it is not enough. And it brings us to me to a second thing about I don't like about water is that we have a slight tendency to pack up, pat ourselves on the back for work that if you looked at it, if the standard of it, and I'm, I'm t- talking really about the, just the political side of things, is that we, we tend to celebrate stuff that's not good enough. In that when we saw, I mean, we were, uh, yeah, sure. Okay, when you've got 111 billion and people are looking to kind of replace all of lead service lines, there's stuff to celebrate in there, but we're looking at a trillion dollar infrastructure gap. And so I think the message should be, what? No, rather than, well done us. We managed to secure a theoretical $111 billion, which is actually probably going to end up at about $55 billion after all of the haircuts have happened. And we tend to be like, yeah, go team, rather than this isn't enough because actually we are at the core of the ability to exist of all of our communities and we haven't done a good enough job doing what we need to, which is safeguard the the health of our communities. I do sometimes wish like we would raise our standards um, a bit. Um, And that's as true in, that's as true in the kind of the political side of things as I think it is in terms of the analysis. Like one of the things I really wish that we had um, was the equivalent of a Bloomberg terminal for water. Um, But I do wish our, our data that was freely available was slightly less, less like bad or at least accessible. Anyway, um, soapbox climbed off. I hope I didn't. I wonder how many people I annoyed. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. So, Tom, you've been, I think your insights have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you had a leave behind message, what would it be? The, the main one, I think, for all of us, because I, I don't know what your listen, listenership is. Um, I, I think it's like obviously pretty heavily concentrated on people who, you know, work within water. But I really want us to tell our story more and better. Um, partially that is to do with the kind of lobbying and making sure that people realize that this this kind of really matters. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to a, a meeting with a kind of a, a, a group that was convened by both WEF and AWWA in San Francisco, I think in 2017. It was the first time I'd been exposed to all of these, you know, really very intimidating water people. Um, but I got kind of, um, uh, I, I kind of piped up halfway through that. And my message was, we are a group of, or you are, because I didn't count myself in this. I've been doing it for two years. As I said, that was a traffic op. I had no idea what I was talking about. But it had already struck me really clearly that this was a hugely talented, dedicated, exceptional group of professionals doing an unbelievable job unbelievably quietly and i think making noise about how important your public utilities are making sure that you're communicating as you know a utility or a muni or a company about the importance of it i mean one of the great things you know xylem sponsoring manchester city is is awesome because people are like wait what's xylem oh right okay and this is great for the sector um there are other other avenues of doing this, right? But I just think that telling this story on a wider basis, because if we do it and we galvanize the attention and make people understand how important this is, 
what we do is we start to chip away at that, you know, the, the classic number of 2.1 billion people across the world without access to adequate water and, and sanitation. And we may be working locally, but really we're all pushing against, we're all pushing against making a difference against that, that number. And it, and it really does start with people starting to get it in a way that people who in the, in who work in the, um, in the sector already do. So I, I suppose that would be the takeaway, but the sub takeaway is check out the burnt island ventures portfolio companies because all of them are doing really good jobs and all of them should be part of your utility stacks, but that's a shameless <laughs> and terrible plug. And I'm sorry, Dave, I had to. No sweat. No sweat. So uh, Tom, for those <laughs> interested in finding out more about you and burnt island ventures, where do they go to get that information? Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely steer clear of me. Um, uh, so I won't do anything on that. Uh, please do do go and visit uh, com. I think it's a reasonable encapsulation of, of how we think about um, the sector. Um, we've got there the Burnt Island 5, uh, which is kind of the five um, uh, sort of aspects of early stage water companies, even if you're not a water startup, I would encourage you to go and have a look at it because we try and cover a reasonable amount of stuff on our blog. Um, we announce all of our companies there. We've only actually announced uh, six of the 12 um, on there at the moment because we're waiting for a few of them, but our portfolio is listed there. Um, but there are all sorts of, um, there are all sorts of various sort of comings and goings on, on that side of things. But if you, if you want to learn more and you're interested in talking, I'm, I'm on Tom at burntislandventures.com. I'm reasonably sort of easily communicable with, um, um, and, uh, yeah, anybody who wants to, to learn more, just please do, do give us a shout because the, the bigger the tent, the better it is for kind of entrepreneurs in the sector. Awesome. Well, Tom, your insights have been incredibly valuable, really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, love the accent. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much, Dave. This is a real, this is a real box ticked for me. So, <laughs> so thank you so much for being kind enough to, to, to have me and have us. Oh, you bet. You bet. Really enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Cheers. All the best. But what a great interview by Tom. I, I indicated it was going to be top shelf. He just has a great way of explaining things. And of course, he has a tremendous uh, you know, cache of ideas for leveraging our collective strength in the water industry from a policy standpoint. So let's hope that we can get some of those ideas going on that front uh, as we progress into the future. Would love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes. Uh, for information on the show and links on the episode, uh, just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. Or again, our home is on the Bluefield Research website. The Water Values and Bluefield are not uh, affiliated companies. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter uh, at that uh, landing page on the Bluefield site. Thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, the sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, and Black & Veatch. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. So in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.